Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're going to go through Revelation chapter 10 and 11 today, but I, I want to do a quick brief recap because I'll, I got a lot of questions about one thing that I missed from last week, and I feel bad about it because I got so many questions about it. So I just want to touch it just briefly, and then we'll get into 10. But last week, we finished the six trumpets, um, these declarations that God was giving over the earth that mirrored the plagues of Egypt because at the end of the world, the entire earth has become like Egypt. Everybody's worshiping false gods. Everybody's worshiping the trees and the sky. Everybody's worshiping the idols of their own creations uh, that they've created with their own hands. Uh, And now the entire earth has become like Egypt. And God has, in his mercy, decided to give the earth in the form of seven trumpets a revelation of how foolish it is to serve things that have no power, that have no real sovereignty. And in the middle of those, one of those uh, trumpets mirrored a plague from the book of Exodus. There was this massive locust plague that just came out of nowhere uh, at the time of the Exodus, and it just ate all the crops, it decimated everything. And we were told that at the end times, there's going to be another locust plague worldwide, um, but it's not gonna be actual locusts. They're going to mirror the locust plague, but essentially it's gonna be a demonic locust plague. There are going to be demons released on the earth, and they're gonna be given permission to torment human beings who do not have the seal of God on their forehead for a period of five months for the purpose of revealing how foolish it is to worship demons. Now that seems like something like, God, why would you do that to, to, to your own creation? Uh, and I think the response that John would have for us is why, why wouldn't he do that? Uh, would, wouldn't you rather um, creation understand that uh, like, this is what torment from the kingdom of darkness looks like for only a five-month period in the possibility that it might snatch their soul out of hell so that they're not tormented by demons for eternity? You, you feel like you're tracking with me? Like that's what he's doing here. He's saying, I'm going to let the earth know how foolish it is to follow these things because this is what these things really want. They don't want your freedom. They want you in bondage. They want to torment you. And we're told that this locust army had these really interesting, uh, they looked strange. They had these breastplates of armor, these uh, crowns of gold. And I talked about um, one interpretation, how those qualities of those beings were um, just kind of symbolic of who these creatures were and how they uh, acted. They had these breastplates of iron so that they couldn't, their attacks couldn't be stopped. They had these crowns of gold, which gave them the ability to rule. Um, They had faces of humans, so it it communicated intellect. Uh, But there's another interpretation that I didn't, just didn't have enough time to get to last week, and that is um, that the appearance of this demonic horde was not communicating who they were, but it was communicating the power that they would hold over mankind. So imagine a demonic being who's got a scorpion tail, and not a literal scorpion tail, this is all symbolic and figurative, but it has the power to inflict suffering on people. Well, what kind of suffering would it inflict? 
Well, this demonic horde has the qualities to inflict suffering on mankind in, a lo- a lo- in lots of different kinds of ways. What I mean is they have a crown on their head because human beings who are predisposed to want to rule and have power, that's the way that this demonic horde will torture them for five months. Do you follow? Those who, those who uh, uh, they have a face of intellect. So those who are predisposed to, to want to reason their way out of God and just say, well, he doesn't really, doesn't make sense. That's the kind of power that this demonic horde will hold over humanity when they torture them for five months. Their intellect will literally be the thing that tortures them for five months. Are you following me? And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because last week I didn't touch on the lady hair. And I got lots of like, what you, you mentioned everything but the lady hair. What does the lady hair mean? Uh, well, there's lots of debate about it, but I think that the lady's hair probably means seduction. So if you are predisposed uh, to be swayed by seduction, uh, by, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the opposite sex has sway over you in sexual immorality, that is one of the ways that the demonic horde will torment mankind for five months. It will be power, it will be fame, it will be seduction, it will be intellect. That's the, that is some of the meaning uh, behind the symbolism of this horde tormenting mankind for five months. Got it? I hope that satisfies your curiosity a little bit. Okay. Now, we, uh, as we get into uh, chapter 10 today, uh, we finished last week with uh, trumpet six, and today the seventh trumpet is going to blow, but there's also going to be an interlude first. So we've got trumpets one, two, three, four, five, six, and before the seventh trumpet blows, there is this interlude in chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11. So that's what we're going to get into today. It still, it matches the same interlude that we saw uh, between seal uh, six and seal seven. And so there's this pattern. So what I would like to do is get into Revelation chapter 10 and 11 today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We'll also put it up on the screen. But let's start in Revelation chapter 10, verse one, and we'll read up to like verse four. It says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. Does that sound familiar? All of this imagery is borrowed from the imagery saw at the beginning of the book that communicates God's presence. This is not just some angel, this is a very mighty angel whose qualities mirror the qualities of God Almighty. So this angel speaks with the authority of the throne room of God. I don't think this angel is God, this isn't the angel of the Lord, but this is an angel who's acting and is carrying all of the qualities that Yahweh would carry uh, symbolically in order to communicate the message of God's throne. So what he's about to say is coming straight from the throne room of God. He had a little scroll in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That's a big angel. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, 
But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. All right, let's pause there. So before the seventh trumpet sounds, John sees another vision and the vision of the, is of this angelic being who is God's personal representative who's coming down to earth. He's carrying, uh, he's wrapped in a cloud similar to how we've seen Jesus. He's got a rainbow over his head just like the rainbow over the throne of God's presence. His face is like shining like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. This is all familiar language to us. And he comes down with this message. He's got a little scroll in his hand and with him comes these seven thunders. And the seven thunders sound, and as soon as they sound, apparently they said something. And John was about to write what they said, but the angel immediately, or a voice communicates to him, I want you to stop writing, do not communicate what the seven thunders say. Now, why would this even be in here if John isn't able to communicate what the seven thunders communicated? Two reasons. One, I think it has to do with the idea that not everything that will happen in the last days is recorded in this book. There are some things that will be recorded or that will take place that have not been recorded or not been said or have been said and John was told, don't say this. This, this mirrors the end of chapter 12 of Daniel when Daniel is told what's gonna happen at the end times, this stuff right here, and then he says, Daniel, I want you to seal up. Don't think about it, don't talk about it. Just take what I've given you, seal it up. The time has not come. Well, the time has now come because Jesus has risen and ascended to the throne. We are in the last days, and we're at this place now where things are starting to be revealed, but there's this thing about seven thunders. Is it another set of judgments before? We don't know because John doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that thunder throughout time, throughout the Bible, in our period today, it does communicate something, and that is there is a storm coming. Okay, if you're out at the pool during the summer with your kids, the kids are splashing around and there's a lifeguard there uh, and there isn't budget cuts because there, there is a lifeguard and he's watching the kids and, and everything's good and all of a sudden there's thunder, whistle blows, everybody get out of the pool because that thunder is sign that something bigger is coming, coming. lightning, storms. You don't want to be in a pool when you hear thunder. It's communicating the same kind of idea. Something is coming and you don't want to be in the pool for it. There is thunder on the horizon because there is judgment that is coming. I think that's kind of what the thunders are communicating even though John didn't tell us exactly what they said. So John didn't write this stuff down, but what he does write down is that the angel is here to give a message. And the message is from this point forward in the history of time, there will be no more delays. Now I don't think we're here yet, I don't think we've seen six trumpets blow. I don't see we've seen mankind tormented by demons for five months. I think that's in the future. But there will come a time just before the final trumpet blows when the angel says there will be no more delays. He is coming. He is on the way and mankind has had ample opportunity to decide what master they are going to serve and what king they're going to fix their eyes on and what throne they're gonna help build. So the angel comes down and says there's no more delays. Let's read that, verses five through seven. This is the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven. It's a sign of a covenant or making a, a promise or swearing. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever 
who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So this angel comes down, wrapped in the symbolism and imagery of Yahweh, saying, I'm here, speaking on behalf of the king. There's seven thunders following me, communicating that there is some judgment coming, there is a storm a-brewing, and I'm here to tell you there's no more delay, that there is gonna be a seventh trumpet sounded soon, and when that trumpet blows, that's it, baby. Game over. That's it. When that trumpet blows, the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled, and that mystery is the thing that all of the prophets in the entire Hebrew Bible have been pointing towards, all the way back to Moses. Now, where, where, where else do we see this kind of language? Well, the seventh trumpet is synonymous with this idea in the Hebrew Bible of the day of the Lord. We studied this when we were in Isaiah. Uh, we haven't studied Joel or Malachi, but Joel 2, 31, Malachi 4, 5. There is this sense that a day is coming. It's not preemptive. It's not the trumpets leading up to. It's not a couple judgments, judgments before. It is literally, there will be a day when the Lord returns, when he cracks the sky and he comes back with vengeance and wrath. And you can't stop it. It doesn't matter what laws you pass, it doesn't matter what prayers you pray, you can't change this date on the Father's calendar. He's coming back. And if you're not on his team, you will suffer his wrath. This day is happening. This is not a myth, this is not a fairy tale. The prophets have been talking about this for thousands of years. There is a day of the Lord where he will return. And when he returns, he will gather his people and he will judge the nations. We're told in the New Testament, Matthew 24, 31, when that last trumpet sounds, he's gonna come back and gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 1552, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, when the last trumpet sounds, the king is coming back. When the last trumpet sounds, the leadership of this earth that has set their hearts against God will be brought to their knees and they will declare every mouth will declare, every knee will bow. He was the king. See, here's the interesting thing about history. When we study history, when we talk about history, we are fixed in on these big moments of history, right? Like, we know about World War I or World War II or the invention of the engine or, uh, you know, when, when the, the great expansion. And we know about American history, European history. But God's view of history is very different than mankind's view of history. From God's view of history, the most significant event that has ever taken place was a guy being crucified between two thieves on a cross in some tiny town in 
Israel. That is the most significant event in history. And in almost every history book in America, it's not even taught. And that's gonna be a fascinating day when that sky cracks open and mankind who is convinced that they could belittle and reduce Christ to nothingness will have to be confronted with the reality that all of this, all of this, this, what the prophets have said, what the New Testament writers taught, it was true. And they ignored it. This is what the angel's declaring. There will come a day when all of mankind will be revealed as, as, as foolish. That all of their wisdom and all of their knowledge that fills libraries across the world, that, that, that just fills the internet from, from the most fascinating things to the most nonsense things uh, on social media, all of it will be shamed when the king of glory returns and says your life was about more than getting likes. This is what the angel's telling us. But what about the scroll in his hand? Let's go to verse eight. It says, the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And so I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pause there. John is instructed after he hears the message from this angel that there will be no more delay to go and take the scroll that's in his hand and eat it. Now this is an Old Testament database reference that goes all the way back to Ezekiel chapter two, verses nine and 10. When Ezekiel was called as a prophet, he was asked, Take the scroll, eat it, consume it. It has a message. And I don't want you just knowing the message. I want the message on the inside of you. I want you to consume my message so it gets on the inside of you and it, it literally gives you life so that it's not just a thing you know, it's a thing that's on the inside of you and then you start speaking it out. Get what's out here inside of you so then it can get outside of you again. Does that make sense? The same thing is happening here. There is a reference to what happened to Ezekiel as a call of a prophet, and it's a call back to what's happening to John as a prophet. And he's told there's this little scroll that this angel's holding, I want you to take it, I want you to eat it, and the scroll, according to what happens next in chapter 11 and 12 and all the way to 22, it seems to be that the scroll contains a prophecy about the future of believers and non-believers people who follow Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. Because what takes place after he consumes this scroll and he's told to go speak it out is we start seeing what's gonna happen on the earth with believers and non-believers. So I think that's what's happening in this scroll. But we're told that this scroll, when he consumes it, is going to be sweet and bitter. And the reason why is because that is essentially 
the summary of the entire Bible. The message to the believer is that, man, the Lord is coming for you. He's, he's, he's coming to get you. He's coming to get you and take you, and he's gonna, you're going to be with him for all eternity. You are his. There's no coming destruction for you. All of God's wrath against you has been satisfied. You are now part of his family, and he's coming for you. That's sweet. But in order to get there, it's a bitter process because this life is filled with pain. So it's sweet and it's bitter. It's sweet because one day the sky will crack and Jesus will be seen in the clouds and he's gonna, he's gonna return for his people. That's sweet, but it isn't gonna be sweet for everybody. The message is gonna be bitter for some because some are gonna hear that he's coming and they're gonna say, nah, I don't believe you. He's not real. That's fairy tale stuff. That stuff's made up. That stuff is on the shelf with all of the other gods who have expired. Zeus, like we don't even, we, like that stuff is, it's laughable. Modern educated people don't think that way. We don't need faith in these things we can't see. It's gonna be bitter for them. And so John is told, I want you to take this message, I want you to communicate to the nations that they must repent and that that is a sweet message. If you want to trust Jesus, he will accept you into his kingdom and his blood will cover your sins. But if you don't, it's gonna be bitterness. This is the message you need to preach. And what's interesting about this message and this scroll uh, is that this is the same message from the entire Bible. The invitation from Ezekiel and to Isaiah excuse me, to, from Ezekiel and to John, is the same invitation for us today. Because while we don't have a scroll to eat, we do have a book. And the invitation to the prophets was to take God's word and get it on the inside of you so that it starts feeding you and changing you. And that change starts spilling out of you. The same invitation is for all of you here today. This book is just like the scrolls that the prophets consumed. You need to eat this book. It is not enough to have enough information in your head to debate someone on moral or social issues as a believer. If this stuff hasn't gotten on the inside of you and changed you and transformed you, then you are nothing more than just a talking head walking around with everybody else who's filled with knowledge, but none of that knowledge changes them. There is a difference between reading and considering and being interested and having your curiosity satisfied and eating this book. There is a big difference between treating this as a hobby and treating this as your only food source for your spirit. And that's the invitation that we don't just see from Ezekiel or John, but it's for us today. This book is something that we're supposed to be consuming and we'll get back to that at the end of the message. For now, let's go into 11, chapter 11, verse one. I'm gonna read a bunch of verses here. I'm gonna read all the way down to 14, and the reason why is because all this is kind of lumped in together, and this is probably the most difficult text in Revelation to interpret because it forces you to pick a side as far as interpretation. You're either gonna come out on the other side as, as literal or symbolic. It's really difficult for you to kind of ride the fence. and like, I don't really know. If you're gonna interpret this, you have to pick a side. So let's read through it, and then we'll talk about it. 
So after he was given the scroll, verse one, chapter 11, it says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These, the two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered into them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory, excuse me, gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Here we go. This is an incredibly difficult section to interpret because it forces you to pick a side. If you are on the more literal side, then when you're reading this and asking, okay, there's talking about measuring a temple and there's two witnesses, this has to be, since there's not a current temple standing, this has to be a third temple that's gonna be built sometime in the future, probably uh, in Jerusalem where the original Solomon's temple uh, was. These two witnesses, uh, according to the description, looks like Moses and Elijah, so probably prophets from the Old Testament coming back, wreaking havoc uh, on the Antichrist, the beast, the prophets. During this period of seven years, or at least the last three and a half years, these two are gonna be wreaking havoc on the nations that are under the rule of the Antichrist. There's gonna be a temple, and all of this is literal. 
The other interpretation of this is to stick with the genre of the book that, okay, we've been symbolically, uh, interpreting this symbolically, and if there's something that comes across to us that seems like it could be literal because it has a literal reference in the past, then we can interpret that literally, but for general purposes, this genre of prophecy and apocalyptic literature lends itself more towards symbolism than literalism, which means that what we're reading here is probably not a literal third temple that's gonna be built. Maybe, uh, maybe it's symbolic of something. We're told in the New Testament numerous times that when Jesus looked at the temple, he said, I'm gonna tear this down and rebuild it in three days, meaning that after his resurrection, we are supposed to be looking at his body as a temple. And then Paul tells us in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, hey, you guys are now the temple because you're in Christ. And, and so there's not a building that you go to to worship. You now are the building. You're the temple. And there's this sense of these two witnesses. Is it literal two prophets or is it symbolically when Paul tells us, or excuse me, when John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, that the seven churches are the lampstands and we're told that these two witnesses are lampstands, are we looking at two literal prophets or are we to interpret this symbolically that when, Paul, when John is asked to measure the temple, he's not measuring a literal temple, he's measuring the temple, you. He's measuring the church, God's people. And when he's told that there will be two witnesses, is it literally two witnesses? Or are we told that these witnesses are like lampstands? There are churches. These are the two options that you have. A more literal approach, which would lend itself to start watching. You want to start looking at the news articles, okay? Is there, and I was having a fun conversation with somebody at, uh, at dinner over Friday about, hey, if you, hear, you know, there's the, 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 the ashes of the red heifer, and we're going to get the priests back together, and kind of like the Blues Brothers, we get the band back together, and we're going we're gonna, to, mm, that reference lost most of you. Uh, but we're going to build another temple, and there's going to be this other thing. Th- if that's the way you're leaning, you're like, okay, well, then, then Israel becoming a state is important because there's all this symbolism. Okay, the other interpretation uh, is that this is symbolic and it's not necessarily speaking about a specific nation and a specific temple and two specific people. He's talking about the church. He's talking about God's people who are still here during this period of tribulation, who are witnesses to the nations, the ones who are sharing the gospel to the nations. I think you probably know which way I lean. I lean towards the second one. I don't read this as literal, and here's the biggest reason why. If you're looking at the way that God progresses the story of Israel and invites the Gentiles in, and the way Jesus fulfills the roles of Israel and becomes a new Israel and and is now the Israel inviting the nations to come unto himself, then all the symbolism of temple was only pointing to a better temple. Hebrews tells us that this physical temple was just a shadow of a better temple that was in heaven that then came down and dwelt among us that was Christ. So if you have these symbols that are pointing to a better thing, when the better thing shows up, I just can't wrap my head around a need to ever go back to the symbols. I don't see a need to rebuild another physical temple when Christ has already done the work of resurrecting the better temple and filling himself among his people. 
And I don't see the need to go back to the Old Testament way of two prophets who are speaking to the nations when God has now infilled his people with his presence and he doesn't have two prophets, he's got millions of prophets. There are millions of Christians across the world that are part of his church that are now lampstands who are standing as witnesses testifying, God is good, he has changed my life and he can change yours as well. Now, if you lean towards the second symbolic interpretation of it, what do you do with this vision that he has of him pulling down fire from heaven and turning the water into blood? I think that's also symbolic. So here's what I wanna do. Uh, I would like to walk you through just a couple verse by verse sections to help you understand where I am on this. And I don't feel the need to do that from the literal translation because if you lean on the literal side, and it's fine, it's fine if you do. Like, you don't, I don't need to walk you th- through this. Literal is literal. If it says it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. But the symbolic side needs a little bit of hand-holding through it because it pulls in references from the Old Testament that some of us are familiar with, some of us might not be. So let's do this. Verse one through two, when, when John has said, I want you to measure the temple, he's seeing the church as temple and it's being measured for protection. This is a tie back to Revelation chapter seven, verses one through eight when we're told that those who have the seal of God on their foreheads will not suffer the coming wrath. So the judgments of God are not for God's people, therefore the non-believers, the ones who are rejecting God. So for, and, and historically in the Old Testament, if that's our database we're pulling from, anytime God ever said measure something, it was for two reasons. It's because I'm about to pour judgment on them or it's because I'm, I'm about to uh, secure them and protect them. I want you to measure them, find out how, much there, how many people there are because we're gonna protect them or I want you to measure them because judgment is coming. And if we're told that God's people aren't gonna suffer judgment, then the only logical understanding here is that this is a tie back to Revelation 7, that God's people are going to be protected. So God tells John, I want you to measure the church and I want you to let them know they're gonna be protected for the period of time that I've called them to witness in the greatest tribulation in the history of mankind. It's gonna last 42 months. The inner court of the temple that you're measuring, I want you to leave out because that's for the nations, but they can trample it for 42 months, but the inner court, you can't touch it. I believe if we're talking about human beings as the temple, inner court, that's your heart. Outer court, that's your body. We're already told that there's going to be a pile of martyrs that the enemy is stacking up because he hates God and he hates his people and he's gonna be killing them on a worldwide scale. So the outside of the temple, that's us, that's our flesh. You're not guaranteed you won't die, but you are guaranteed that the wrath of God won't touch you and that your faith won't be ripped from you. There is inner stuff can't be touched of your temple and there is outer stuff that the nations will trample for 42 months. Now, 42 months is interesting. Is that symbolically? It might be. But there are literal ties to 42 months in two different places in the Old Testament. And I think that's kind of where he's getting this from. The first being the season of Elijah's ministry. James actually references in James 5, 17. He says, Elijah was a guy just like you. And he prayed and God answered his prayer. And he shut up the sky for 42 months. 
three and a half years. The implication is you may not be Elijah, but you can pray like Elijah. You can have faith like Elijah. And in the same way that Elijah was a witness among his people, I'm asking you to be my witness among the people I've called you to live among. There's another reference to 42, and that is with Moses. If you look in Numbers chapter 33, verses five to 49, there were 42 encampments that Moses had with the people of Israel. So there is a literal anchor to the number 42. So it could be a literal 42 months, three and a half years of tribulation that the church is going to be persecuted by the Antichrist. But it may not be, it may be symbolically. In verses three through six, we're told that authority is gonna be granted to these two witnesses, that they could preach and prophesy during this time. They are the two olive trees, the two lampstands. Lampstands are churches. Olive trees are the things that provide the oil for the light. So these are essentially the fire burning bright among the nations. They're the lampstands. They're the things that are witnessing. That's the reason why they're called two witnesses because um, if there's going to be a cosmic court where everyone's deeds are gonna be called out into the open and people are gonna be judged, there will be witnesses who stood up and said, uh, yeah, that nation, they murdered me because I believed in you. Are you seeing the weight of this? No one's getting out. Politicians, people at the top, celebrities with money, people with power, they think that no one will see what they do in the dark, but it's not true we will stand as witnesses against them in testimony because we trusted the lamb and they trusted their wealth. We're told in verse five that if anyone harms them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall. Now is this literal? Is the church carrying this power or is he saying something more? I think he's saying something more. He's referencing the ministry of Elijah and he's referencing the ministry of Moses. Now what does the ministry of Elijah and Moses have in common? They were calling their people, the nations, those who lived at the time of their ministry to repentance. And they were challenging the gods of their day. When Elijah said, if you're gonna worship the prophets of Baal, my God will shut the sky for three and a half years so it doesn't rain, just to prove to you that you can pray to Baal all you want and he still won't answer your prayers. And there was actually a showdown with these prophets of Baal where Elijah finally says, you know what? It hasn't rained for three and a half years. Let's have a little showdown. Let's call, I'll call it to my God, you call out to your God and we'll see who answers by fire. So they got together, these prophets of Baal, they're like crying out, they're all day long, they're cutting themselves, trying to cry out, God's not answering in Elijah's mocking them. Maybe you should pray louder, perhaps your, your God is going to the bathroom. He literally said that. Then he says, I tell you what, my turn, pull out the offering and go get buckets of water and soak the offering, just covered in water. Now just imagine what it would have been like for it to not rain for three and a half years and then Elijah's instructions is to soak the offering with water. 
Where do you want us to get the water from? Doesn't matter, I'm proving a point. So they soak it with water and Elijah prays and God answers by fire. The point is not that Christians in this time are gonna be calling down fire and shutting up the sky. The point is that symbolically during this time, the church will stand against the kingdom of darkness and be the only witness in the world to what true light looks like. They will stand up against anything the enemy has to throw at them, and they will essentially be like the ministries of Elijah and Moses, saying, we're not worshiping your false gods. We're calling your people to come to our team and worship our God. So the entire time the Antichrist is spreading his propaganda and nonsense across the world, there's one group of people who won't bow their knee and won't shut up about talking about Jesus. It's, Jesus, it's, it's Christians, it's Jesus people. We are the ones who refuse to follow the way of the dragon because we're following the way of the lamb and constantly every time the enemy gets a foothold and tries to make an advancement the kingdom of light comes in and sucks more people out of hell every time the antichrist thinks he's going to get ahead and gather more control what do you mean i just lost a general somebody who who got saved this person got saved what do you mean they went to an underground church this week every time the kingdom of darkness gains a foothold The church is there snatching it back. They are a force to be reckoned with because they are filled with power. And what we're seeing here, the picture that John has given, is that the church is gonna cause some havoc in the last days. They're not weak, they're not powerless, they're the only ones on the earth with real power. And the only ones preaching the true message of freedom They're the only ones as a lighthouse, as salt and light, as lampstands, as olive trees, who are standing amongst an entire world of darkness saying, you don't have to follow the dragon. And that message is dangerous to the dragon because he loses followers. And so I see this as a symbol, symbolically as a picture of the church causing just havoc over the kingdom of darkness in the last days. But why are there two witnesses? Is there only two churches? I think it calls back to Deuteronomy 19.15 when we're told that two or three is the minimum number of witnesses you have in order to bring a charge against someone. It's symbolic, it's not literally just two churches. Although I do find it fascinating that in the seven letters to the churches, only two churches we're doing things, we're doing exactly what God called them to do. Everybody else had areas of improvement and repentance. They were either giving in or they were dealing with false doctrine. In verse seven, it says, when they had finished their testimony, the beast rises out of the bottomless pit and he starts making war on them. So the church is warring against the kingdom of darkness and the beast and they're doing that by preaching the good news and praying. See, this is the fascinating, like the church isn't advancing because we have a larger arsenal and more bullets and we stockpiled more food. Those aren't the weapons of our warfare. Listen to me, I like shooting as much as the next guy, okay? I love shooting, but that's not what this is. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. They're powerful for the pulling down of strongholds, for bringing havoc against the kingdom of darkness. The weapons we have 
our holiness and prayer and preaching the good news. And that kicks in the teeth of the devil faster than any bullet that you can buy. Are you hearing me? This is not militant war language on the carnal side. This is militant war language on the spiritual side. We're looking at a church who has nothing but Jesus and they've got nothing to lose. And they pray bold prayers and you can't scare them with death. You can't push them back into a corner and make them insignificant. Taking away their 501c3 doesn't scare them. Taking away their building so they can't meet doesn't scare them. Robbing them of life doesn't scare them because they've already been promised that they're gonna come back to life. There is no fear. Though the mountains give way, and the, the earth gives way, and the mountains are cast into the heart of the sea, they don't fear. Why? Because in the time of the greatest tribulation on planet earth, God is their refuge and their strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble. It doesn't make sense, but it does make sense through the lens of Christ. How did Christ conquer death? By laying down his life. How did Christ bring the strongest weapons of warfare in the spiritual sense? It wasn't by riding in on a white horse and conquering Rome. It was by laying down his life as a servant by preaching the good news and saying, come out from under that wrath. Don't fear someone who can take your life. Fear someone who has the power over eternal life. And then we get into verse 11, 14, 11 through 14, just running through a quick interpretation of this. The Antichrist is making war against the church and he seems to have made some headway because he is killing believers and their bodies are laying dead in the streets. What street, what city? Well, we have three cities in verse eight. It's the great city that symbolically, okay, so symbolically, so it's not a literal city, but symbolically it's Sodom, Egypt, where the Lord was crucified, that's Jerusalem. That's three different cities. So I think the vision is communicating that at the end of the age, every city has become like Babylon. So it's every city and it's no city. Everywhere across the globe, those who follow the lamb will suffer for following the lamb but suffer for only a small time because we're told that once they're killed and their bodies are laying out on the streets that the nations rejoice over all of these dead Christians. And you're like, hold on a second. I didn't sign up for this. Like somebody just said like pray a prayer and then I don't have to go to hell. You didn't tell me like we was like dying and all of that. Sorry man, somebody didn't preach you the whole book. When Jesus says, follow me, guess where, guess where, he, where, guess where his life led to? A, a cross. He says, take up your cross, follow me. This path is a path of death. This path leads you to repentance, letting, putting your, just crucifying your flesh. This path ends in death. Dot, 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 and then new life. And that's what happens in 14. Well, 12 through 14, 11, 11 through 14. All of a sudden, as the nations are rejoicing in this great cosmic party that they've killed all the Christians and ended their troubles, a loud noise cracks the sky and the dead are raised to new life. And we're told that that great earthquake kills 7,000 people and the seventh trumpet sounds. 
Go to verse 15. This is the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints of those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The time has come. Now it's interesting, he references the, the elders are singing out that your wrath has been poured out before his wrath has actually been poured out. So don't read this chronologically that these things are happening in order. They're happening but sometimes they're overlaying on top of each other. Sometimes these guys are singing about things that he will do just before he does them. Verse 19 says, the God's, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within this temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and hail. So the seventh trumpet sounds and the sky opens up and all heaven starts singing. And right before this, we see this resurrection. Now remember, I said before, these visions, they're not chronological. Sometimes they overlap. Sometimes we're talking about something and then the vision will circle back to explain something else. I, I think what's happening here is that that resurrection that we see, when the nations are rejoicing over killing, dead Christ, killing Christians and their bodies are laying dead in the streets, the moment the sky opens, I think that John hears that trumpet sound clarifying what we see in that resurrection. I think it's the same event. We're told in Matthew 24, 31, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, that at the last trumpet sounds, he's going to crack the sky, come back, and he's going to gather his church from the four corners of the earth. So you show me a vision that includes resurrecting of God's dead people, a trumpet, the last trumpet, and a sky opening up, and I think what you have is the beginning of the Lord's return. This is the day of the Lord. The angel already told us when the seventh trumpet sounds, all of the things that the prophet spoke about is gonna be fulfilled, the day of the Lord. So the moment that trumpet sounds, that's the moment Jesus comes back. That's the moment the church is resurrected. We gather with him in the sky and then begins the great procession across the sky following the king to the battle of Armageddon, pouring his wrath out on the nations, pouring his wrath out on um, the beast and the antichrist as he heads up to uh, Armageddon and he doesn't even lift a finger to destroy him. He just says, game over, and everyone dies. But that's not the most fascinating thing about today. The most fascinating thing today is that John is giving us a picture of what the posture of the end times church in the last days looks like. What does the church in the last days look like? John says this is what the church in the last days looks like. The church in the last days is warring against the beast. 
The church in the last days is saying no to his ideological mark, exposing the lies of the prophets, and telling the kingdom of darkness, we don't want what you're selling. In fact, our God is offering something better, and anybody on Team Dragon is welcome to come join the Lamb anytime they want. They are prophesying, they are preaching, they are proclaiming the good news. They may be hiding in some house, but they're operating with more cosmic power than a thousand demonic armies. One praying Christian has more power in his pinky than thousands of armies fueled by the kingdom of darkness. That's the kind of power this church is operating in. This church is moving in, in power through prayer. They're, they're moving in power through evangelism. They're moving in power through holiness. They don't, they don't pollute their bodies with the things of this world. They're not interested in what the world has to sell them. They're, a, they're filled with worship. Their eyes are fixed on the king. And I'm bringing this up because in Revelation chapter 6, I showed you how the New Testament writers viewed the time we were living in. Every moment following Jesus' resurrection to the time where he returns, they called it the last days. So if this is the posture of the last days church, and you are living in the last days, then what we're reading is to some degree more intense than what we're experiencing now, but it's certainly not less than how we should be living today. See, as I look across the church today, I see, not, not you, you, not you guys, but the church, I see a lot of Christians sleeping when it's time to be warring. I see a lot of Christians hitting the snooze button rather than getting on their knees to pray. I see a lot of Christians scrolling through their phones rather than giving their heart in worship to Jesus. And I see a lot of Christians eating the internet and not this book. So what is Revelation 10 and 11? Well, it's certainly a revelation of what's gonna happen sometime in the future, but it's also an expectation of the way that the church should be living today. There is a sense that this church should be kicking in the doors of darkness through the power of prayer and holiness and reading the word that I feel like we have lost because we get tied up in things that don't matter. Our knees aren't raw from prayer anymore. Our eyes aren't weary because we've been staring at the word. It's not in us. It's around us, but it's not in us. And so my plea for you today from Revelation chapter 10 and 11 is to examine what John sees as the last day's church and ask yourself, do I reflect that? Do we reflect that? Does his church look like this? Or can I not tell the difference between his church and Team Dragon? Because when I'm watching the followers of this earth, they sure like being discipled by everything but this. So here's the play, here's the, the plea for today. It's time for some bold prayers. 
it's time for you to start treating your prayer life differently. It's not just time for bold prayers, it's time for expressive worship. And it's time to start living out holiness. It's time for you to to stop saying yes to pornography. It's time for you to stop saying yes to those flirty relationships outside of marriage. It's time for you to stop saying yes to the news cycle dictating to you what's important to you. It's time for you to stop saying no when the Holy Spirit asks you, hey, tell that person about me. Share your testimony with them. It's time for you to stop saying no when the pastor says, let's memorize some of this word together. Ah, I can't, I'm too old. My brain doesn't work, I can't memorize things anymore. I'm not good at that. Ah, then you have bought the lie of the enemy. He's conned you. When the Lord commands, walk in holiness, and you say, ah, it's too hard, the enemy has lied to you and you have believed the lie. He's got you. The moment you say to a command of Jesus, I can't, it's too hard, you have given way to the same temptation that brought sin into the world. When the serpent told Eve, "Uh, did he really say that? You know he's holding something back. He's robbing something from you. There is so much deception that operates within the church and it just masquerades as, well that's a little, that's a little extreme, that's a little much. Let me just tell you, there is nothing more extreme than eating the word, than praying to your Father who has all power, to the throne room that governs every other throne room in the world. The invitation to us is simple. Start praying, start reading, Start giving the devil a black eye. Stop letting him have authority over your mind and your home and your family and your kids. Start praying bigger prayers. And just watch what the Lamb does. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.